Palmdale United Methodist Church's podcast for Sunday, November 3rd, 2019. May God use this as a blessing to you today. Let us pray. Oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Riga is the capital of Latvia just off the Baltic Sea. Biblical scholar Kenneth E. Bailey, in his book, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes, tells a story about a time that he was privileged to lecture at the Latvian Lutheran Church in Riga. And he says this, much of the participants of the seminar were between the ages of 25 and 35. That, that meant that all of their education had been in the communist state system, which was determined to indoctrinate them in atheism. I asked, one of the young women, about how she came to the faith. Uh, was there a church in your village? I asked. Uh, no, the communists closed all of them, she said. Did some saintly grandmother then instruct you on the ways of God? Uh, no, all members of our family were atheists. Did you have secret home Bible studies, or was there an underground church in your area? No, none of that was her answer. So, <laughs> you got to tell me, he said, what's your story? She said, at funerals, we were allowed to recite the Lord's Prayer. As a young child, I heard these strange words, which I had no idea who we were talking to, what the words meant, where they came from, or even why we were saying them. When freedom came at last, I had the opportunity to search for their meaning. When you're in total darkness, she said, the tiniest point of light seems very bright. For me, the Lord's Prayer was that tiny point of light. And by the time I found its meaning, I had given my life to Jesus. Welcome to a new three-week sermon series about that tiny point of light. I'm calling it the Jesus Prayer. And we'll be looking in depth at a prayer that I dare say most of us have know by heart and probably have known by heart uh, for many years. The Lord's Prayer is quite possibly the most well-known, most memorized, most recited portion of New Testament Scripture for us as Christians. And many of us grew up praying this prayer since, as we say in Hawaii, small kid time. And we pray this prayer every week here at Palmdale United Methodist Church. We all know what the various parts of the prayer mean, at least a basic understanding of the words that we're saying but over the next three weeks, we're going to break it down to reveal even more insight of the power and depth of this prayer than, than we may have been aware of in the past. So that we, as we continue to pray every week this iconic prayer, both in our private and communal lives, it may take on even greater significance for us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, was a German author, pastor, theologian, and anti-Nazi dissident. And he once said this about our subject. He said, all the prayers of the Holy Scriptures are summed up in the Lord's Prayer and are taken up into its immeasurable breadth. So let's jump right in and see what it is that we can discover about the Lord's Prayer. I invite you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, first book in the New Testament. It's approximately four-fifths of the way through your Bible. You can grab the Red Pew Bible in front of you if you wish. You can take out your smartphone and open up your Bible app. And if you have the Palmdale UMC Church app, scroll down on the front page to Bible. Click on that, and every week uh, we have it open to the chapter that we're reading, and then you just got to find the verse that we're starting on. And so we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6. 
But let me give you a little introduction here. The Lord's Prayer comes from a section in Matthew's Gospel known as the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has gone up to a mountain to teach, and his disciples and others gather around him to listen. And for three chapters, he downloads all kind of incredible teachings to them, including the Beatitudes, right? That part that starts, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. He teaches the golden rule, right? Uh, Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. He gives instructions on anger, adultery, divorce, promises, retaliation, loving your enemies, giving, fasting, money, judging others, seeking the Lord, just to name a few. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And he also teaches about prayer. In chapter 6, smack dab in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus begins to address this issue of prayer at verse 5. And whenever you pray, Jesus says, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. When you're praying, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for uh, they think that they will be heard because of their many words. So for starters, Jesus says, your prayers don't have to be long, and they don't have to be a performance. I mean, one might think that the longer the prayer, uh, the more God appreciates it, right? But that's not exactly the case, says Jesus. And that's not exactly the case, said uh, Bob Bull, who was my early church history seminary professor at Drew Theological School. It, It was Monday morning, my first week of grad school, my very first class, church history, 8 a.m., And Dr. Bull addressed our uh, grad school newbies by saying this. Uh, Now that you're preparing to become pastors, everywhere you go, people are going to ask you to pray. So here's my advice. Keep it short and keep it relevant to the situation. And he went went on by saying that every day I'm going to go through the uh, roster and we'll start with the person whose name is alphabetically first and then the next class the next and we'll go down like that. And and I'm going to call the name and if you're here, uh, you get a chance to pray, to open the class with prayer. Uh, I'm going to be grading your prayers, he says. And if you pray it short and relevant, you get an A. If you're not here or if it goes on and on, you get an F. I'm just letting you know right now. Uh, And as you can see, I've never forgotten that advice. I'll be referring a lot to Kenneth Bailey's book, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. And he mentions that the Gentiles or, or anyone that wasn't Jewish back in Jesus' day had the opposite mentality when it came to prayer. Not short and relevant, uh, the longer the better. In fact, when they addressed their gods, they wanted to make sure they used all the titles of their gods, lest their gods or the emperor, who was seen as a god, uh, might take offense if you miss one of the things that he or she was known as. In the early 4th century, a Christian historian named Eusebius uh, quoted a decree issued by this man, Galerius Caesar. Here's how Galerius Caesar's uh, decree began. The emperor Caesar, Galerius, Valerius, Maximanus, Invictus, Augustus, Pontifus Maximus, Germanicus Maximus, Egypticus Maximus, Phoebicus Maximus, uh, Sermenicus Maximus five times over, Persicus Maximus two times over, uh, Carpicus Maximus six times over, Arminicus Maximus, Medicus Maximus, Abenicus Maximus, holder of the tribunal authority for the 20th time, emperor for the 19th, consul for the 8th, pater, patriae, proconsul, etc., 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 That's how Caesar understood himself back in the day and expected to be addressed by others. And such a manner was considered appropriate and continued in the Middle East all the way up to the middle of the 19th century. It's kind of like this scene from 
HBO series Game of Thrones. You stand in the presence of Daenerys Stormborn of House Targaryen, rightful heir to the Iron Throne, rightful Queen of the Andals and the First Men, protector of the Seven Kingdoms, the mother of dragons, the Khaleesi of the Great Grass Sea, the Unburnt, the Breaker of Chains. This is Jon Snow. <laughs> He's king in the north. <laughs> On a side note, I think Jesus would have loved Jon Snow. That's just my opinion. In the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, the author touches on this same topic uh, of advice when talking about how to pray when you enter the house of God. Ecclesiastes 5.2 says, Never be rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be quick to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you upon earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Along these same lines, Jesus is inviting us into a world where Talking with God doesn't have to be filled with long, multisyllabic, flowery words. Keep them short, keep them to the point. The Lord's Prayer. As we begin to look at the Jesus Prayer, it's interesting what's not included. You see, back in Jesus' day, devout Jews like himself would pray three times a day. It's like it's recorded in the book of Daniel. At sunrise, at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and again at sundown. And scholars say that uh, by Jesus' time, this would have been widespread, that the Jews would have been practicing it all across the Mediterranean. Yet nowhere in the Gospels does Jesus ever suggest that we pray at specific hours during the day. In fact, that's the first thing missing from the Jesus prayer as we get started. The second thing missing will be revealed momentarily. Matthew 6, verse 9 Pray then in this way, says Jesus, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. There was a series of 18 prayers that Jews in Jesus' day would pray every morning. They're uh, collectively referred to as the tefillah. Tefillah is Hebrew for prayers. Uh, the 18 short prayers in the tefillah are spoken in the Hebrew language. And Kenneth Bailey notes that uh, the modern consensus among scholars is that the Lord's Prayer, though, didn't begin in Hebrew, but began in Aramaic with the word for father, Abba. Aramaic was the common daily language that Jesus and his disciples would have spoken back in the day. It was, their, it was their common tongue. Now, in the first century, if you were an Aramaic Jew, you still had to recite your prayers in classical Hebrew, not Aramaic. Even Muslim worshipers have a traditional prayer language that's classical Arabic. So although both Judaism and Islam have what we might call a sacred and official language, Christianity does not. This is of huge significance. You see, Jesus lived in a world where the public reading of Scripture was always done in classical Hebrew. Prayers had to be offered always in classical Hebrew. But here comes Jesus teaching his followers to pray, and he doesn't begin his prayer in classical Hebrew. He chooses Aramaic, the common language of the people. You could say that Jesus might be saying there is no uh, official language of God, that any language can be used by any person anywhere. Of course, we know that now, right? The Bible has been translated into over 700 different languages, the complete scriptures. But back in Jesus' day, this would have been groundbreaking. The next thing we notice with this simple introduction, our Father in heaven, is uh, another uh, what's missing item. 
Those 18 prayers of the Tefillah, they began by addressing God in various ways, including the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, or God of our fathers, or the builder of Jerusalem, or the redeemer of Israel. But when Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, he starts by inviting them to simply address God as what? Our Father. That's right. There's no uh, tie directly to Jewish tradition by name or location. In fact, again, this is another opportunity to say that everyone is able to address God on equal footing, no matter whether you've come through the Jewish faith or come uh, from some other way. Our Father. There are no insiders and outsiders based on your racial heritage or tradition. Everyone can say, our Father, for God is the Father of all, not just the father of some. So let's look more closely at this first word of the prayer, Abba. It's it's an Aramaic word that was used by an Aramaic-speaking person in talking about his or her earthly father. It was also used to address a respected person of rank, or students would use that uh, in, in speaking about their teachers. And aside from the Lord's Prayer, the word Abba appears three other times in the New Testament. When Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane in Mark chapter 14, in Romans 8 when Paul is speaking to the church about prayer, and then in Galatians 4 verse 6 when Paul is talking about our hearts reaching out to God as children when we're praying. What's interesting is that if you look up each of these three verses where they use the Aramaic word father, Abba, they also follow it by the Greek translation of father meaning that the authors, they record the Aramaic word, Abba, and and they follow it up with the Greek word for father, Hopater, in every single case, Abba, Hopater. I mean, it would have been so much easier if they had simply used Hopater because more people spoke Greek than they did Aramaic, but no, they included Abba in addition to Hopater. It must have been so important to the early church that they wanted to make sure that all the believers knew that was a way to address God. Now, on all three of these other instances of the uses of Abba, it's all in regards to prayer. In the Old Testament, the, the word Father was used a dozen times in connection with God, but it was never used as a direct address to God. So in the Old Testament, when they used Father to talk about God, they were describing what God is like. God is like a Father. Jesus calls God Father directly. He uses the Aramaic title Abba to say Father, our Father. Kenneth Bailey notes that in at least four countries in the Middle East, even today, Abba is the very first word that a child learns when they're learning to speak, Abba. Here's another interesting tidbit. The earliest church buildings that have survived uh, were built in two sections, They had one section for the believers, and then one for those who hadn't yet given their lives to Jesus or hadn't been baptized, right? That second group of people were called the catechumens, and uh, there was a special section in the back of the church where the catechumens could come, and they could be a part of worship. They could uh, attend and listen and sing the hymns and listen to the sermon, but after the sermon, they would be politely ushered out of the service, and then came Holy Communion. It was believed that this experience of taking part in the sacred meal was inappropriate for those who were yet unbaptized, who hadn't made the commitment to Jesus. Well, it's during that communion liturgy that the Christians always prayed the Lord's Prayer, just like we do 
prior to receiving communion on Sunday mornings. Apparently, the church felt that this title for God, this intimate calling God Abba, should only be used by those who, have, who believe and who have been baptized and committed their life to Christ Jesus. You see, Abba is a very intimate way of addressing God as Father. And some have said it's like calling uh, God Daddy, which isn't exactly true. I mean, it was used by children, sure, but it's not baby talk. It literally is translated as Father. And I also know that not everyone has had a, a positive experience with their own earthly fathers. Bailey says we should take our cue then from how Jesus understood Father. And the best example that Jesus gave of a definition of a father is the parable of the prodigal son, right? You know the story? A man has two sons. The younger son insults his father, basically saying, I wish you were dead. Ask for his inheritance that you only get when someone dies. The father divides the property, gives it to him. He takes it to a foreign country and and blows it on the slot machines or whatever they have over there. Runs out of money. There's a severe famine. He realizes, boy, I made a mistake. I got to go home. There's no way I'm going to be welcomed back as a son. Maybe I can be hired on as an employee to my parents, uh, my dad. At least I'll have a place to stay and something to eat. And he practices this speech. And as he's getting home, his father sees him from a distance, runs out, embraces him, and welcomes him back before he even gets his apology out. Well, in this iconic story, the father goes far beyond anything that uh, the culture would expect of a human father. And, and, and as amazing as some of our uh, earthly fathers and mothers have been, God is even more amazing than that. Andre Nouwen, in his book, The Return of the Prodigal, says this about the father in this parable. This is not the portrait of a remarkable father. This is the portrait of God, whose goodness, love, forgiveness, care, and compassion have no limits at all. Jesus presents God's generosity by using all the imagery that his culture provides while constantly transforming it. When Jesus invites us to call God Father, it goes above and beyond anything we've ever experienced in our own relationships with our fathers. And when we begin the prayer by saying, Abba, our Father, we're addressing in an intimate, loving way an intimate and loving God. It's a prayer of the heart, a prayer that can be expressed in any language, uh, making our connection to the one who created us, who redeemed us, and who sustains us, our Abba, Father. And then superimposed with this intimacy, we also acknowledge our Father who is in heaven. In the Middle East, uh, mothers and fathers usually live in close proximity with their children for the duration of their lives, often in the very same house. In contrast, the Abba of Jesus' prayer is both intimate, but also in heaven, indicating a lofty, high, and lifted up component of God. Yes, God is our Abba, our Father who loves us greatly, but God is not someone that we have under our own roof. He's not some personal deity that's beholden to serve only us. God who lives in heaven is present with everyone at the same time. The second part of this Jesus prayer concerns uh, hallowing God's name. And it seems kind of paradoxical, doesn't it? If you think about it, like, Uh, asking that God's name be made holy is kind of like saying, may the rock be hard. May the water be wet. I mean, the rock is already hard. The water is already wet. God's name is already holy. There is nothing more holy than the name of God. Kenneth Bailey says, suggests we look at uh, another passage in the Old Testament, Ezekiel 36, to give us some clarity. According to the Old Testament uh, holiness codes, 
When a homeland, the, the, the land where the people of God live, when it becomes defiled, the people will no longer be able to live there. In fact, the language is it will vomit out the people. The prophets said that's what happened during the exile, right? When the Babylonians came in and took the best and the brightest away to live for 70 years in a foreign land, it was because the people had forsaken God. They had worshipped idols. They had shed innocent blood. They had not lived the way God wanted them to live. And, and so God drove the people out, said the prophets. They had defiled the land. And in the eyes of the Gentiles, in the eyes of all the other nations around, obviously God's not strong enough to save them. That's why God let them go away. And so God was, God's name was defiled as well. Ezekiel 36 22 to 23 says this. This is God speaking. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned. So when God is saying that he's going to make his, his name holy, he's speaking about the, the saving acts in history that he is going to perform about doing things in the world that will bring others to know, oh my goodness, there is a God, and God is incredible. There's another passage in the Old Testament that sheds light on this topic. In Isaiah chapter 6, we find a prime example of God making his name holy by demonstrating his holiness. The prophet Isaiah has this vision of standing in God's throne room. And all you can see is there's a, the, the hem of God's gown, of God's robe, just the very bottom of it. And there's these great pillars in this room uh, with smoke, and, and, the, and the pillars start shaking. And there are angels, six-winged angels called seraphim. And they're flying around, and they're singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And Isaiah, standing there, just feels so insignificant. He realizes how unworthy he is, how, how sinful he is, how he is a man of unclean lips, and I live among people of unclean lips. And then something amazing happens. God sends an angel uh, to Isaiah with a burning coal. And again, this is a vision, right? Symbolically touching his mouth, his unclean lips with that hot coal and says, now that this has touched your lips, your guilt has departed and your sin is blotted out. And then God says, all right, who's going to go for me? Who's going to be my messenger? And Isaiah says those famous words, here am I, send me, right? So let me pull this into perspective. When we pray the prayer, when we pray the Lord's Prayer, hallowed be thy name, when we, uh, we're asking God to demonstrate his holiness, to reveal his holiness in our lives and in the world, and when we pray, hallowed be thy name, we recognize we too, like Isaiah, are people of unclean lips, that we have done things, we have said things, we have failed to do things. Our sin it, it has, uh, has put us in a, a spot where we have not lived the way that God would have us to live. All of us fall into that category. And yet, as people who profess to be followers of Jesus, that leads others to think, well, if that's what a Christian does, <laughs> I don't think I want to be a Christian. And, and God's name appears to be defiled in the eyes of the world. So when we pray, hallowed be your name, we're asking for God's cleansing power in our lives so that we might in turn be open to be used however God would send us out into this world. Not because of anything we are, but because God's holiness has forgiven us and set us right. And then we can be agents of love and grace in the world so all may come to know how amazing God's love truly is. 
So pray then this way, says Jesus. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. I hope you'll come back for the next two weeks as we go deeper into this amazingly simple yet profound Jesus prayer. And all God's people said, 